0: This podcast is brought to you by AJ Bell and Shares Magazine. Shares Magazine is published by AJ Bell Media, part of AJ Bell.
1: Hello, welcome to this week's Money and Markets Podcast. I'm Dan Coatesworth and I'm joined this week by Danny Hewson. Hi there, Danny.
0: Hi, Dan. It will not be a surprise to anyone that top of the shop today is the decision by the Federal Reserve to hold interest rates steady. We expected that, but it was the comments from Jerome Powell that there could be not one, not two, but three rate cuts in the US next year, which really set things going.
1: So later on the podcast, we'll be assessing the market reaction. It does feel like we've been given a bit of an early Christmas present. We're actually recording this ahead of the Bank of England's decision on interest rates. But we'll dig through the realms of UK economic data that's already made the headlines this week.
0: In other markets news, Pfizer shares hit a 10-year low after it warned on next year's revenues. Plus, could London markets have some new recruits with reports that both Sheehan and Boots might list in the UK? And we'll also take a look at an investigation into claims of greenwashing against Unilever.
1: And we've got two interviews for you this week. First up is Will Riley from Guinness Sustainable Energy Fund on making money from clean energy stocks. We've also got Anthony Cross from Line Trust on why he's optimistic about small UK companies.
0: Plus, late collapse here.
2: Yeah. Hi, Danny. It's that time of year when we uh, dust off the annual um, manager versus machine report. This is a report from AJ Bell looking at active and passive funds. uh, And I'm afraid it's been another tricky year for active managers. So lots to pack in. And I think we should start with the rates.
0: Yeah, it seems like after months and months and months of talking about when the Fed might pivot, the pivot might finally be just a few months away. We did have, as expected, the Federal Reserve um, keeping interest rates on hold when it made its decision. But when you took a look at the dot plot that it puts out alongside the decision, it is now expecting to cut its key interest rate not once, not twice, but three times next year, which is a huge change You know, we've had um, Fed Chair Jerome Powell actually being quite hawkish over the last few months, saying very much that he felt like the job wasn't done, that maybe there needed to be more rate hikes, that markets were getting ahead of themselves. But this time he was almost had a spring in his step when he was giving his press conference. He's usually quite wooden, but he was almost enthusiastic. He did say it was far too early to declare victory. He said there's a lot of uncertainty. We've seen the economy move in surprising directions. So they are going to need to see further progress. But yeah, the expectation is that we could see rate cuts as early as March. Now, we know markets get excited, they get ahead of themselves. And while the Fed has sort of penciled in, assuming that inflation keeps coming down, penciled in those three cuts, as I say, Markets themselves are already pricing in more than that. I mean, it's amazing when you see market expectation flip and you think, what exactly are they listening to? Because they are certainly being enthusiastic. It is a big shift, Dan, and it made a huge impact on markets.
1: Yeah, I mean, I'd say, you know, we're recording this on Thursday and I haven't seen sort of this very broad rallying in stocks for for quite a long time. Um so on just after the the sort of J Powell gave his statement the, the US stocks that market was already open on on Wednesday night. Um the Dow hit a new record high. The S&P 500 very close to its peak it saw at the end of 2021. And then then as markets opened in the UK on um, Thursday FTSE 100 was up 2% FTSE 250 of mid-cap stocks, more than 3%. What I thought was really interesting is only four stocks in the entire FTSE 350 index were down um, on Thursday morning. And that's stuff that's already done well, like BAE um, and RELX this year. Uh, And so you you really have got investors sort of saying, great, this pivot, we've been waiting for this for so long, it's now come, and there's this prospect of even more cuts and perhaps some, you know, we thought the market's certainly pricing it in that way so yeah I mean it's really interesting to see what's moving first of all Danny I don't know if you recall back after the the global financial crisis in 2008 um, the start of 2009 we it, it was March that year we saw um, the market's turn and we saw the initial <laughs> stuff was everyone, everyone called it the dash for trash and I think we've <laughs> we've seen a little element of this again. Low quality companies are the ones that are moving the most. So things like Vizarian and Music Magpie. These are things that they're rallying 25% this morning as we're recording this. Um, property stocks are on the move. Obviously, this is the market saying we're going to get lower interest rates. Obviously, that's beneficial for property companies. Companies that are really heavily indebted, really highly geared, like Mobico, which used to be the new name for National Express. Um, then... Of course, this sort of dovish tilt from the Fed sent the dollar down, and that's positive for the gold price. And so we've seen gold miners go up. And then things like Ocado. So you know that when the market's in a risk-on mood, Ocado is the one that always rallies, and we've seen this again. Of course, if you're you're looking at – sort of lower bond yields has is, is also happened. And of course, that, that impacts um, when you're trying to discount future cash flows. And of course, this is beneficial for, for sort of long duration stocks like Ocado. So really, we've seen, you know, I, I guess if you're if you if you're looking at your portfolio and you're thinking, okay, maybe some of the stuff that hasn't been really moving recently, um, hopefully you'll be looking at it, uh, you know, to the tail end of this week and saying actually things, you know, things are starting to pick up. I guess the key question now is how long can this go on? Um, obviously, if interest rates are going to be cut, it's because they're concerned about a slowdown in the economy, which isn't necessarily good news.
0: Yeah, absolutely. But of course, there is concern because we are recording this, as Dan said, on Thursday morning. So an hour and a half before we get the decision from the Bank of England on rates. Now, we decided to record this because our... Um, diaries are, are pretty full. And because, frankly, we are not expecting any change from the Bank of England. We're expecting rates to say exactly where they are. But once again, market watchers will be listening really carefully to everything that Andrew Bailey says, just to see if there's any sense that the Bank of England might be anywhere near a similar pivot that we've seen from the Fed. I think the chances of that are pretty slim. Last time around, we had three members of the Monetary Policy Committee actually voting in favor of rate increases, not rate cuts, not even holding things firm. And it it looks likely that we'll see a similar thing again. And a lot of that is down to a slew of economic data that we have had out just in the last couple of days. Now, inflation numbers are next week. Inflation has come down here in the UK, but by nowhere near as much as in the Eurozone and the US. And a key figure that we got on Tuesday was wage growth. The Bank of England has been really concerned about the potential impact on inflation that wage growth might have. It came in at 7.3%. Now, that is down from where it was. But when you're talking about over 7%, in order for the Bank of England to start really thinking about rate cuts, it needs to see wage growth around the 4 maybe 5% mark, but certainly way down from the 7.3%. But Dan, you were mentioning earlier about concerns about a slowdown of the global economy. Well, certainly here in the UK, we got GDP figures yesterday, which I think caught a lot of people by surprise because it contracted 0.3%. It was expected that maybe it would contract 0.1% or be a bit flat. Remember, September, we were up 0.2%, but no, it contracted 0.3%. And of course, that started the jungle drums beating again, suggesting that we might now be headed towards that recession that we've been talking about really for at least the last year, but we haven't seen it materialize. So, really the state of the uk economy normally when you're talking about the potential of recession you would talk about rate cuts in order to get the economy moving here in the uk it feels like we are just not there yet
1: shall we talk about some company specific news now one that really caught my eye yesterday was pfizer the big drugs company share price was not having a good day what was happening there then danny
0: it was not having a good day um you flagged this up to me um yesterday afternoon and I'd taken a couple of hours off because I was caught up with all the GDP stuff on uh, Wednesday morning and uh, yeah a, a little tired so I took a long lunch came back took a look at Pfizer and it was like what is going on <laughs> I mean it fell almost eight uh, percent raised about 14 billion billion dollars in market capitalization. Um, the shares had already been down over 44% uh, this year before we had this announcement. And it was all down to the fact that it expects revenue, not this year, but next year to be way down on market expectations. And of course, it, it's all caught up with its path post-pandemic. So it really was a pandemic, darling. I mean, if you just think about the impact that that vaccine had on all of our lives, I mean, it gave the world back its freedom once again. We were all able to get out and about. But not as many people as have been anticipated have taken up the vaccine, and that is a trend which is expected to continue. So you know, they're expecting that sales will be as much as $5 billion below expectation next year. And, of course, we, we saw um, other vaccine maker um Moderna falling uh, off the back of this, and also um, Pfizer's German partner BioNTech, its shares fell as well. But the big issue, I, I think, for Pfizer is the way that the company is structured and where it takes itself next. So there was a lot of focus yesterday on its pipeline, and a lot of analysts were saying, well, it just doesn't look very exciting. You know, we cannot expect it. To generate the kind of revenues it saw in 2021 because the world has changed. But we want to be able to get excited about this company. And we know that it's cost cutting, we know that it's reorganizing its cancer division, it's being by an awful lot of companies to try and sort of shore up the pipeline. But it just doesn't look exciting at the moment. And that's one of the reasons that we saw uh, shares falling. Uh, Yes, 10-year low yesterday.
1: I also wanted to mention about Walgreens Alliance. So this is the owner of um, UK High Street the Boots. So last year, Walgreens was quite eager to sell Boots. um, And there was talk that lots of private equity companies were having a look. But um, what happened was the the deal fell through to sell it because it was right as we saw interest rates are just shooting up. And of course, private equity firms have, um, historically, well, certainly over the last sort of you know ten, fifteen years, th- their deals have been based on borrowing money cheaply. Um, and of course, now that the, the, the cost of borrowings have gone up quite a lot, they can't just you know perhaps rush in and, and you know with a click of a finger buy something like Boots. So, um, Walgreens is it, as it, itself is sort of trying to reinvent itself a bit. It's 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 got lots of debt. It really needs to do something different. So, we've now had revised. Um, expectations for, for what's going to happen. Of course, when when a company can't sell one of its subsidiaries, the, the logical thing to do next is to think, well, can we float it on the stock market? So there's now chatter that it's going to look to float boots on the London Stock Exchange next year. Um, and I guess th- yeah, this would be quite interesting because we've not really had many IPOs, certainly n- nothing like the scale of a company the size of boots for for a long time. Um, so I think obviously it's a well-known name. Investors will be comfortable. They, they, perhaps they visit the shops quite a lot. Um, so uh, yeah, I mean I think you know, of course this is pure speculation at the moment. But actually, it did a deal um, last month where it sold, you know, essentially offloaded the assets for for what 4.8 billion pound pension scheme to Legal and General. So that Legal and General taking on the liabilities for all this, and that was seen as sort of removing a major obstacle. To either, you know, trying to sell it again or float in the business. So um, I guess you know you're just joining the dots at the moment and thinking that, okay, well, you know, this actually looks like a, a credible market chatter that this actually could come onto the market.
0: Well, whilst we're talking about potential UK listings, here is a name I didn't think I would be talking about in connection with a possible UK IPO. Sheen. We have been talking about the fact that it could. List. Certainly, um, we have heard that it confidentially filed to go public in the United States last week. But this week, reports on Sky News that Sheen's chairman, Donald Tang, met executives from the LSE and other stakeholders in the UK economy. During a visit to London last week. Now, Sheen's declined to comment. LSE hasn't responded to Sky's requests or from other news agencies to talk about this. But, you know, potentially this could be absolutely massive. The online retail is valued at about $80 billion. So clearly for the London markets, which have taken a bit of a kicking over the last couple of years about whether or not it's a bit of a dinosaur, whether or not it can attract the kind of tech companies which would see it really start to shine again. Now, Sheen's interesting because although it is a tech company, it is fundamentally a retailer. So actually, in terms of London markets and in terms of how investors might respond to Sheen, it it potentially could be a really good fit for London. It, we know, is planning on setting up a new office in Manchester. It made its first UK acquisition in October. It bought um, the retailer Misguided from Mike Ashley's Fraser's Group. But, Whether or not this would actually be a boon if London were to be successful, well, I think there are an awful lot of question marks here because it has been hugely criticised over its working practices, over its traceability, governments and transparency of materials. So it, it could be that if London were to get this listing, it might get caught up in an awful lot of issues connected with the scrutiny of Sheen's supply chain. So it could be one of those things where it's damned if you do, damned if you don't. But the fact that there is chatter about two potential London IPOs is a real positive given all the negativity around the UK market this year. IPOs are something which fund manager Anthony Cross from Lion Trust discussed with Dan when they caught up at AJ Bell's recent Investival conference, along with what it might take to get more people interested in UK shares. Anthony is a smart chap, as you'll hear now.
1: So, Anthony, thanks for joining us. I think, can we start off by getting your opinion on the current state of the UK stock market? Is it in a good shape or, because you know, there's certainly lots of negative headlines about it.
3: Yeah, well, lovely to be with you. It's in uh, a difficult shape at the moment, but therein lies the opportunity. Uh, what we've seen over the last, you know, 18 months, two years is quite a lot of flows, quite a lot of money coming out of the UK equity market. A couple of reasons behind that. One is that interest rates are clearly quite attractive now for people with, with, you know, the deposit rates or gilt rates. So some people have taken money out of the UK equity market and just put it into cash, where they're getting a return for the first time in many, many years. The other reason is that quite a lot of wealth manager businesses have been reducing the amount that they put in for their clients in the UK market. They've been buying more global shares. They've been buying more America and more emerging markets. And that's meant that money's been coming out of UK funds and into these other, more global funds. And that's put pressure on share prices. The opportunity is is that the UK market is now really cheap. And the work that we look at, we use a database uh, uh, called Quest. And normally, the UK market does track its kind of discounted value, its discounted cash value. But what we're seeing at the moment is that it's opened up to being about 30% cheap from where it should be, and in small caps about 50% cheap. Whereas the American market is looking 40% too expensive, and the European market a bit expensive. So the opportunity is that the UK market is very, very cheap. And I love that old Buffett saying that in the short term, stock markets are voting machines. It's all about perception, it's all about stories. In the long term, they're weighing machines, the weighing up of cash flows and value and ultimately value will out and the UK market will see a rally and things will pick up and then you'll get into the reverse of what we've been having that doom loop will go into reverse and we'll be in the virtuous circle of people putting money into the UK market, the UK market will be going up, people who aren't in the UK market will say oh no I'm not in the UK market better have some of that and the whole thing then starts to get into a much better loop of excitement and rising prices.
1: I was going to ask you, what what do you think the catalyst will be? I guess we're already seeing it, aren't we, that the the stage one is takeovers because someone is recognising that value, so what what will come next, do you think?
3: Yeah, so we've certainly seen a lot of takeovers, particularly in the very small companies. Uh, I'm surprised that there hasn't been more in some of the larger companies, but I think it's because private equity are slightly scratching their heads with regards to funding because they're suddenly having to pay more on their debt because interest rates have gone up. But perhaps once they've kind of sorted that out a bit, then they'll come in for some of these more mid-cap and large-cap companies. I think we'll also see more M&A from corporates, so companies, buying other companies. Uh, and we've seen elements of that certainly in our, in our small stocks. Other catalysts will be potentially government incentives for people to buy more UK equities. There's certainly talk about pension funds being encouraged to invest more in the UK, both in private equity, but also in the AIM market, and perhaps allocating more to UK equities. Um, and there's other talk about, uh, you know, other support coming in, um, you know, trying to really reinvigorate the whole idea of the, of the UK equity markets and the importance of equity markets to jobs and, and business creation and the long-term success of the UK economy. So, you know, it's a question of trying to create the flows, create the demand, but there are things that can be done.
1: I think if we if we had more demand there, perhaps we would see more IPOs, more companies joining the stock market for the first time. And clearly, at the moment, there really isn't any happening at all, aren't they? You know, just here and there. You, any sort of chatter in in sort of the in, you know behind closed doors that we actually 2024. There's already a pipeline of things they're just waiting to to float.
3: Yeah, I think there is a bit of a pipeline, but I also think there's a, there's an issue that they need to make sure that. Being a listed company is a really great thing. Um, and in many ways it is because you've got, you know, long-term shareholders, access to capital, and you saw that clearly during COVID, where a lot of PLCs, a lot of listed companies, were able to very quickly get cash onto their balance sheets. Um, you've got to make it an attractive place to be, the listed equity markets. And a, and there has been some degree of of, of companies feeling perhaps that they get overregulated, or the playing field isn't fair so they might have remuneration you know pay restrictions uh, or they might have lots of governance restrictions and board com- you know composition restrictions which might be all very good and well-intentioned but the level playing field is something that companies like we all like fairness and therefore if the if listed companies are going to be treated in a certain way you'd wish to see it similar in other businesses Or you've perhaps got to back off some of the the angst about areas like remuneration with listed companies and remind ourselves that listed companies are competing against private equity businesses, they're competing against US companies, overseas overseas companies. So we've got to make sure that we really make the UK equity market a, a, a fun place, an attractive place and a rewarding place for companies to come and want to list.
1: So, in, in the Lion Trust Special Situations Fund, um, you know, how's, how's the year been for you, Has there been a, you know, have you managed to find you know, a couple of really good investments and they've made you a decent uh, sort of gain so far?
3: Yeah. So, a lot of our investing is, is kind of long-term, trying to find long-term compounding businesses who get real strengths through intangible assets, their intellectual capital, things like intellectual property, distribution networks, recurring income brands. We like our companies to have high returns on invested capital. So strong barriers to competition, proven returns on capital, long-term compounding is how we make our money. So from year to year, yeah, you're going to have your, your pop stars. You know, you're the ones who do really well, and you have some who, who might be more disappointing. Uh, this year, it's been some of the big caps that have done really well. Uh, you know, companies like Sage Group, really strong performance. Reed Elsevier, now called Rex, strong performance. BP and Shell strong performance. Uh, so some of the big companies have performed really strongly for us. The areas that have been more difficult, and we all know it, we've all felt it, right across the UK equity markets, has been in small cap and mid cap because of this kind of flows problem that we chatted about earlier. Flows have been coming out, people have been, you know, selling shares, there's been pressure on share prices. So the more disappointing areas for the fund have been in those businesses where you know, they were fairly rated or may have been a little bit expensive going back to 2021 and then have now seen what you know we call a derating so a collapse in their price earnings ratio a collapse in their valuation to really low and very compelling levels and the joy of those in some respects is that the undervaluation of those companies is your store of future performance so next year you know the likes of your sages and your bp's and your shells might actually underperform and your winners next year might be the ones that have, you know, gone down in share price, and where that store of value is, and then they'll they'll take up again.
1: While we're talking about you know what might happen next year, I mean, how how is your sort of optimism levels at the moment? Do you think obviously we're approaching the end of twenty twenty three? Um, do you think actually next year might be quite good for for investors?
3: Could be quite good. I mean, as I said, look, the UK market is very cheap. Small caps are even cheaper. Um, you need to see a, a turnaround in, in flows, so demand for equities. But as I said, you can, can get back into that virtuous circle of people buying the London market and then people run, worry that they're not in it and then coming in and buying it too. Um, so things are cheap. The one thing that we, we – is difficult for all of us out there at the moment to get a gauge for is the strength of the economy. So nothing is falling apart badly at the moment but you've seen pockets of weakness. You've seen pockets of weakness in US tech spend, which then also then flows through to some of the companies in the UK that are exposed to that. So we've seen it in, you know, in in learning companies like Learning Technologies or in RWS, the patent translation business. You know, they've been affected by weaker US technology spend from those big tech businesses. At the utmost discretionary end, you know, we've had a company where, you know, it's involved in um, promotional material for businesses. So, in a very strong... It's it's got partly a software business, but also a promotional business. And so on discretionary spend, you've seen, you know, a a slight pulling back on discretionary spend coming on. So the the economy feels a little bit uncertain. Um, And and I guess lots of times the economies feel uncertain and we don't quite know where things are going to be going. But at the moment, it's that kind of people are seeing the cheapness, but they're also a little bit hesitant about the economy. If we go into 2024 and things economically are stable or pick up again a bit, then this cheapness will get really recognised and, and I think performance could be pretty strong. But we need to get through this kind of economic uncertainty period and know quite where we are for that cheapness to unwind, I think.
1: Well, Auntie, thank you ever so much for joining us.
3: Thanks very much indeed. enjoyed that.
0: That was Anthony Cross from Lion Trusts UK Smaller Companies and Special Situations Fund. Uh, let's bring in Laith Kalaf now. And you've just put out the latest AJ Bell Manager versus Machine report. It's an improving picture from active managers.
2: Uh, yes um, improving um, without being spectacular I think is is probably uh, the report in a nutshell um, I and mean, just to explain quickly what the the report is we we basically look at um, active versus passive funds in seven uh, key equity sectors so not absolutely every sector but seven sort of very important ones particularly for growth investors so regional markets like global, Um, UK, European, and so on. Um, And we look at how many active funds have outperformed the average passive fund um, in each sector. So we have had an improving picture this year compared to last year, but um, last year was a bit of a washout. Last year, only 27% of active managers managed to beat a passive alternative in their sector. This year that's um, risen to 36%, so still um, just over uh, a third. Uh, so um, probably not not a not a great result. I think quite a lot of it's being dragged down by what's going on in, in the global sector. Only twenty five percent of um, global funds managing to um, outperform a passive alternative in twenty twenty three. And if you look kind of at the bigger picture, um, active management is going through a bit of a tough time. So it looks like it's going to be the worst year. Um, on rec- for for fund launches for managers actually bringing funds onto the market since 2008, which gives you some idea of the kind of sentiment uh, towards towards active management. Um, and flows into active management are not are not are not very positive either. Last year was absolutely appalling. Um, this year is is a lot better, but it's still negative. Um, so money is still still coming out of active funds. And if you look at the last five years as a whole. Um, you can see that the nine billion pounds has been withdrawn from active funds, and at the same time, over that over that five year period, we've seen seventy five billion pounds going into tracker funds.
0: And you look longer term as well, so sort of ten years. And generally, for active funds, it hasn't been great performance. What's been behind it?
2: Yeah, so I think um, one year is not a good time frame over which to to judge the the. Um, the, the kind of skill of an active manager or active managers generally so we do look after over 10 years as well and you would hope that figure um, generally would would um, would be better unfortunately it's not so um, uh, over the last 10 years um, our, our figures show that um, 32% of active managers have outperformed a passive alternative and just to remind you, compared to this year, that's uh, only uh, 36 uh, outperformed in this year. Um, so again, a lot of it comes down to this global sector where, where 25% of, um, uh, uh, sorry, only 22% over 10 years, 22% of global funds outperformed uh, a passive alternative. Um, and I think a lot of that is, is to do with the kind of prevailing trend, trends that we've seen in markets. Um, over over the last ten years, uh, and in particular the the kind of dominance of those big U.S. tech stocks. If you look at the global stock market, I the MSCI World Index, which is what what most passive funds will probably track if they're global passive funds, then a huge amount of that. Uh, index is composed of of the the big tech stocks. So if you look at the magnificent seven, the big seven tech stocks in the US, that makes up for almost a fifth of the entire index. Um, Apple makes up around 5%. um, uh, Microsoft a similar amount. And just to give you some idea of context, the entire UK stock market only makes up 4% of that, that, that MSCI world index. So you've got very quite heavy concentration even in, in a standard passive fund within within the US tech stocks now of course US you know kind of global global managers are able to invest in those, those stocks and and many of them do but in order to actually invest more than a passive fund, you have to take a very, very active position. And you can see why some managers might might balk at doing that. Um, and certainly it looks like, uh, you know, kind of over the last few years, managers in the global sector have been underweight um, uh, the US uh, on average and and underweight tech as well. Uh, and as I say, those have been the kind of dominant winning winning themes in markets. And that probably goes a long way to explaining why, we're seeing this, um, you know, these 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 figures come out in terms of of weak, weak figures for active management. Um, you know, we've we've done this report for for three years now, um, and the results are fa- fairly similar most most of the time, and that we're looking at around a third of active managers uh, outperforming over most time periods. But it might just be that we're, we're at the, the kind of you know, peak of a certain market cycle, or maybe we're not at the peak, maybe we're still going through it and there's more, more to come. Uh, but certainly there have been long running trends in market, which I think have p- favoured passive funds and arguably that the passive funds are also driving.
0: But it's not completely straightforward, Laith. What should investors consider when it comes to choosing between the two?
2: Yeah, well, I think if you're looking at um, active or passive funds, I think um, one of the key differentiators in in terms of which route you go down is how much um, legwork you want to do. Uh, I think if you're looking at investing in active funds, then generally speaking, uh, you do have to do a bit more homework in terms of selecting a good active fund manager, or one that you think will do well, and uh, also monitoring that investment as well. Um, I think with passive funds, you can be a bit more laissez-faire, but I wouldn't say it's totally hands-off. There are some big decisions that you need to make. Um, So in particular, what index you want want to track and also to make sure that you are investing in a competitively priced uh, tracker fund because there can be quite a wide variation in charges. So to give you an example, the cheapest UK tracker fund is available for an annual charge of 0.05% and the most expensive costs over 1%, so more than 20 times more. And obviously, over time, all that does is erode uh, the returns that you receive. So uh, that's one thing to consider. Also, what kind of areas are you you thinking about investing? Now, our manager versus machine looks at seven key equity sectors, but there are more niche areas where potentially active managers um, probably have a better stab at outperforming or perhaps which aren't well served by passive vehicles. So I'm thinking particularly in smaller companies, um, the idea of capital preservation, uh, and also producing income as well. Uh, And I think, you know, our manager versus machine report also shows that there are some areas which historically, it has been harder to beat the market. Uh, in particular in the global and US sectors. And that kind of makes some sense because those are poured over by more eyes. And so it's harder to get an edge in those markets. Uh, and and probably the most important thing I would say about this is that don't forget, you can have a mix of both active and passive funds. So in the industry, like the investment industry can be quite polarised about this, saying, you know, kind of, you know, pass, passive investing is the right way or or, or active investing is the right way. I mean, actually, it tends to be the active investors don't really tend to say that you shouldn't invest passively, but passive investors tend to be quite quite fanatical, or certainly some of the advocates of passive investing tend to be quite fanatical and dogmatic about it. But as an investor, you don't need to be dogmatic about it in any way. You can be pretty pragmatic and just say, actually, I'm going to have a mix of of passive and active vehicles. You know, perhaps you use the passive funds as a, a you know a diversified core, and then choose some active managers around the edges. Perhaps investing in in uh, in more of the niche areas or simply ones that you uh, you have higher conviction in um so i think that that would be my main message is that you you don't have to choose one or the other you can have a mix of the both of both and hopefully get a bit of the, uh, the best of both worlds thanks leith
1: so there's been a lot of focus on green issues over the past week with the cop 28 ending with a landmark deal calling on nations to transition away from fossil fuels. With a summit making it clear that renewables are the future. Now, in a moment, we'll hear from Will Riley from Guinness Sustainable Energy Fund about investing in the clean energy space. First, I just wanted to talk about a bit of news that's linked to greenwashing. So, Danny, I don't know if you um if you buy unilever products um you know they do lots of different things like um cleaning products healthcare products um and and food items
0: i do i have a number of those in my kitchen cupboard which i can actually see from my kitchen table right now
1: <laughs> so i don't know whether you've noticed about some of the packaging that you know they, they quite often use things like green leaves and they're very much trying to come across as a sort of company that's caring about the environment um this might have backfired slightly because it, the, the competition and Markets Authority is now investigating Unilever over its environmental claims. It's worried that consumers might be slightly misled by some of Unilever's claims about how green its certain products certain products are. Um, so I think it, what one of the things it's talking about is, is the packaging, and it's sort of saying that some of the product ingredients. On its packaging was, was sort of presented in a way to exaggerate how natural the products are, and of course this is this comes under the category of, sort of corporate greenwashing. So it's sort of saying that um, the the, the colours and the images, such as green leaves, are sort of slightly concerning, and and the CMA is arguing that it could overstate sort of the environmental friendliness. So this is this is part of a sort of a broader investigation by the CMA into how products and services. By many, many different companies are being marketed. So I think if, if anyone's sort of been following this story, it's already sort of had a look at what ASOS, Boohoo, and Astra are doing on sort of the fashion side of things. Um, looking at sorts of the, sort of the statements and languages uh, that these businesses are using, sort of thinking: Are they a bit too broad? A bit too vague in terms of stuff like "ready for the future," "George for good." Um, so really, you know, you could. You, you can sense that I don't think any any company is going to be um, sort of think okay, well if we do green stuff and therefore we, we'll be fine, we'll be you know, we'll just carry on and people will love us you know, the competition commission here is thinking, if you're going to do this, you've got to back up. Where's the evidence to show what's going on? Um, You know, some, some products have been found on the fashion side to contain little as 20% of recycled fabric. So could you really sort of say, yeah, you know, we're offering an environmentally friendly product here um, when it's really doesn't quite sort of, cut the mustard really here. So um, yeah, one to watch really in case of what happens next with Unilever.
0: It's really complicated, the whole recycling thing as well, because you get a lot of products that say recyclable and you think, okay, that's great. But actually when you then look at where you live, what your council is offering, you think, well, this is just going to have to go into everything else. It's just going to have to go and get into landfill. So I think there is a huge amount of work to be done. It'd be really interesting to see what the CMA comes up with on this. Let's bring on our next guest. Will Riley helps to run the Guinness Sustainable Energy Fund, where he invests in companies involved in the generation, storage, efficiency and consumption of sustainable energy source. Think things like solar, wind, hydro and biofuels. Now, it has been a rocky ride this year for most people in this space. So Dan recently met up with Will to make sense of what is going on. Let's hear what he had to say.
1: It's easy to see why people are interested in investing in all things related to the energy transition, but the news flow and share price performance of stocks like Orsted and Siemens Energy perhaps suggest it's not easy going. Um, I've seen. Sort of news that offshore wind developers are cancelling or delaying projects. We've heard stories about some car companies are losing money on electric vehicles. Uh, solar stocks are down. I mean,
4: I mean, what's going on in the clean energy space to make it so volatile? Yes, I think 2023 has been an unusual year. On the one hand, policy progression around the energy transition has actually been generally pretty good. Uh, We've seen significant new investments in the US, for example, um, thanks to the Inflation Reduction Act. Uh, If we look at China, we've seen renewable programmes accelerating quite nicely. China, we think, is about two years ahead of its um, latest transition plan. And even in Europe, where there have been some holdups around things like the Net Zero Industrial Act, actually progress has been been reasonably good. But as you suggest, there has been a significant pullback in the sustainable energy equity sector. Um, And much of that, I think, has been led uh, by issues around some of the headline sectors, notably offshore wind and U.S. residential solar. And I think those issues have pulled the whole sector lower. Um, And interestingly, I think if you look at the pullback in equities in the sector, which has particularly happened over the last six months or so, a lot of that has actually come from a fall in valuation multiples as opposed to a fall in company earnings. Um, so if we look at our Guinness sustainable energy portfolio, for example, we can see that the forward PE ratio of the portfolio since the start of the year has come down by uh, nearly 30%. Um, if you compare that to the MSCI world, um, which has seen its forward PE inflate. Um, and that puts us at quite an interesting point, we think, where renewable stocks are looking at their cheapest level probably since early 2020, so the cheapest level in the last um, three and a half years. So yes, there are some headline issues, but um, actually I think valuation's looking quite attractive. Are any of those sort of the problems
1: linked to the higher cost of borrowing that we're now seeing? I was wondering whether lots of companies have modelled their potential returns in the low interest rate environment. So actually now in a higher rate world, the economics no longer stack up quite a lot of these projects?
4: I think higher interest rates have been an issue. Um, It's often said in this sector that one of the critical raw materials for large-scale renewable projects is money. Um, and, And why do people say that? Renewables projects tend to be very capital intensive. They tend to have high upfront costs and then relatively low operating costs over the life of their operation. And if you contrast that to fossil fuel operations, fossil fuel utilities tend to have lower uh, upfront costs and then higher operating costs. So that makes them less interest rate sensitive overall. So I think this has this has been an issue for the renewable sector. Um, but I'd say a couple of things in in mitigation. Uh, we pay, uh, I think, firstly we pay close attention to what we call the levelized cost of electricity (LCOE). So that's the the lifetime cost of these projects and the electricity that they produce and we remain confident that solar and onshore wind remain at the low end of the cost curve compared to gas, coal and nuclear despite um, interest rate rises, and even if we look at offshore wind, which is the most interest rate sensitive of the different renewable sectors, we still think that that sits in the middle of the fossil fuel cost range, despite these these, these changes. So we continue to be attracted to the economics of, of renewables. I think the second point I'd make is is looking at power purchase agreements. So those are the agreements that um, greener utilities and power providers sign up with corporates or with or with uh, um, the larger grid, and and we can see that those PPAs, those power purchase agreements, um, are rising, um, both in the US and in Europe. We're seeing increases of about 20% per annum um, compounded over the last four or five years, and so that does, over time, I think, insulate renewables from, from higher interest rates, um, but it just takes a little bit of time to feed through. Equipment manufacturers in areas like wind, turbine
1: are having problems to to things like mechanical issues as well as sort of higher raw material costs. How has that affected your investment decisions in the Guinness Sustainable Energy Fund?
4: Yes, so within the wind space, we, we have seen particular issues with Siemens Energy, um, who to your to your point have seen issues with the quality of their turbines. And, and, and to be specific about it, it appears that a, a main piece of the frame of a number of Siemens' wind turbines can uh, can move or twist over time, uh, and that is potentially damaging other critical components such as bearings and blades on those turbines. So um, those turbines are still in operation, um, but it's now incumbent upon Siemens to revisit those projects and, and to correct those, those problems, and Siemens, I think, have been quite candid now that it's been a, a lack of proper testing that's to blame there. Um, Now we we don't own Siemens Energy in our portfolio um, but we do own one of their main competitors which is Vestas. And Vestas have not had the same quality issues but like all uh, turbine manufacturers it has suffered from the increase in raw material costs. Um, And and, and if we track that back over the last three or four years, um, Vestas signed various contracts Let's say between 2018 and 2020 and, and locked in prices at that stage um, and it's been delivering on those contracts f- for the last couple of years in a period when costs have been going up they Vestas have not been able to pass those costs on um, and that squeezed the margins of a lot of those key key projects and that actually drove Vestas to a negative EBIT margin in 2022 um, but as we look today the the contracts that Vestas are now moving on to the ones that were signed in the last couple of years have been priced at a better rate there are better inflation escalators included in those contracts so i think things are uh, are, are looking up um, so m- more broadly you know these issues have, have generally cropped up this year in in some quite specific areas particularly on the supply side of the renewables equation a lot of money continues to be invested in this
1: space but Ultimately, does it only sort of stack up if there are decent government subsidies?
4: I think if you, if you think about the key reasons that are driving the energy transition, I might pick out a, a couple. You might look at um, energy security, for example, um, and, and that's become particularly important post the Russian invasion of Ukraine. Europe waking up to the fact that it can no longer rely on um, Russian hydrocarbons. We'd look at climate change. Um, we're approaching... Um, COP28, and um, and that is clearly a, a key driver, the fact that it's incumbent upon governments now to decarbonize via cleaner energy. Um, but we always highlight, most importantly, economics is a key driver, that, that actually renewable sources of energy are cheaper than incumbent sources in most parts of the world. So we've, we've reached that economic tipping point, which we think is, is quite important. So what we mean by that, if you were sitting in um, the middle of the US or or, or in China for example and you were looking to build a large-scale power utility, it is now cheaper to pursue let's say a a large-scale solar utility or wind utility, cheaper than than pursuing gas, coal uh, or or nuclear for example. Um, Now that doesn't mean that government subsidies are irrelevant um, and they are important we think in the sense that they accelerate the transition um, things like the Inflation Reduction Act in the US. Um, but ultimately, we think those types of government incentives are designed to get these industries scaled up, get them to critical mass, rather than necessarily being a, a critical part of long-term economics. And um, I, I think government subsidies and energy are, are nothing new. If you, if you look back at the, um, the evolution of the, of, of the oil and gas sector in the US, for example, think back to the 1990s, the expiration for oil in the Gulf of Mexico, for example, that relied for a number of years on very heavy government subsidy. Um, And and I I think what we're seeing in renewables today is is no different, as I say, an acceleration um, to get some of these technologies up to scale, but ultimately they stand on their own two feet.
0: Will Riley talking to Dan. Okay, let's end the programme with a bit of personal finance news because we had an update from insolvency specialist Begby's trainer this week, which said it was recruiting more staff because it's expecting the challenging economic environment to push more companies into insolvency over the next year. Now, we often talk about the impact of companies collapsing on shareholders, but we thought we'd end this pod talking about the consumer after thousands of people were Left out of pocket after the collapse of Smile Direct. Now, I don't know if you know um, Smile Direct Club. Um, I certainly looked into it because my daughter needed braces recently and she went the sort of traditional route with the old train tracks. But I know a lot of people like the idea of being able to get the mold done in their own home, send it off, and then get the bit of kit that they can then use to straighten their teeth. And This is not cheap. So a a typical aligner would cost £1,800. So, you know, a lot of people are are really saving up or they're putting it on credit or uh, other kind of funding in order to get the kind of teeth that they want. And it can really impact people's confidence. A lot of people pay the money ahead of a wedding or some other big event But Smile Direct Club has closed down. It actually filed for bankruptcy back in September. But now, because of the huge amount of debt, it has collapsed entirely. So the big question, of course, is what happens to all those customers that have just paid for these aligners and have never received them? What happens to all those customers who are halfway through this particular treatment? Maybe they're expecting the second lot of aligners or something like that. And what happens to the lifetime guarantee? Um, I've been asked about this quite a bit because, you know, people, they can't afford to lose this kind of money. And as I say, it does really knock people's confidence. And often they're spending this money at a time, as I say, ahead of a wedding, which also comes with a huge cost. So One of the things which people are being advised to do is if you paid recently on a credit or debit card, you could go to your provider and ask if you can charge back the purchase. It's a service that you're not being provided, but you do need to make sure that you tell your card provider that this company is going bankrupt. Um, It might not be possible um, and certainly if you paid a while ago, it, it won't be possible. And also, um, chances are, by the time you get to this, there might not be an awful lot of money left in the pot. However, if you paid in full or in part with a credit card, and you spent over 100 quid, now clearly, in this case, you probably did, then you could claim back your money via what is called a Section 75 claim. Now, if you didn't if you paid by other means then it is incredibly unlikely that you're going to get any if at all even a tiny bit of your money back and in terms of the lifetime guarantee i'm afraid that that folded with the company not much to smile about
1: mm, cheery stuff isn't it no i mean it must be so frustrating if you like say if you are in the middle of a treatment and you're thinking okay i need some more stuff and you know, what do I do? Incredibly frustrating, isn't it? But, um, I guess it, you know, it does highlight some, some of the benefits that you have from, you know, using a credit card. I know obviously we don't want people to, to get into debt if possible. Um, but there are some protections that do come with them. So it, it's definitely worth having a look to see if you can get any help in that way. So that's, that's all from us this week. Um, next week's podcast is the last one of the year. We'll have Tom Selby on the show, joining Danny and Laura. Um, talk a bit more about pensions we've got a few fund managers who'll be talking about some of the best opportunities they've spotted for next year and we'll have some of the team from shares magazine to talk about nvidia so until then thank you very
0: much for listening before you go please remember this podcast is for educational purposes and the views expressed don't necessarily reflect those of aj bell or shares magazine the podcast isn't telling you whether certain investments are suitable or not